The sound is truly <laughs> magnificent. The Union Jack. Fighter jets over Buckingham Palace. The sound of horses trotting down the map. The day has finally arrived. 70 years on the throne, seven decades on the throne. Queen Elizabeth's historic 70-year reign. After 70 years of wading through history, the Queen of England is celebrating her platinum jubilee. And she's the very first monarch in British history to do so. Over 14,000 people have shown up for the four-day celebration. They've come to watch Trooping the Colour. Thousands of soldiers dressed in striking red uniforms, parading down the Mall on foot and on horseback. All of this is to wish the sovereign a very happy birthday. Of course, her actual birthday is in April, but they wait till the fair skies of a British June for this public celebration. It seems a great sea of people coming down from the far end of the mall. Well, you can definitely feel the atmosphere here at Buckingham Palace, standing just in eyeshot of the balcony. Regardless of what people may think of the monarchy, this is undeniably a moment in history. And just a stone's throw away from the palace gates, among the crowds, horses and cameras, is me. We're standing at the focal point for the parade, the pageant, and the party. Artists like Lin-Manuel Miranda will perform on, look at this, this specially constructed stage outside the palace. I was reporting for NBC News live from the ground, and crowds were absolutely teeming with anticipation, impatiently waiting for one iconic royal moment. We may be getting ready to see the Queen herself on the balcony for that, that salute. The doors swing open on the grand balcony of Buckingham Palace, and from the threshold, the Queen emerges, walking cane first, dressed in bright blue. Right on time, the Queen's appearing on the balcony. I just was thinking, what must be going through yes. her mind? 70 years ago, she was a 26-year-old young lady, suddenly thrust into having to take the throne and be Queen of England. Assembled to her right, Prince Charles and future Queen Consort Camilla. To the Queen's left is Charles's heir, Prince William, Kate and their three children. Slowly, the rest of the working royal family take their places. Elsewhere in the crowd, a friend is covering the day's events too. You can see all the crowds around me. You see the big shining lights behind me are down in front of Buckingham Palace. Daisy McAndrew again, NBC News royal commentator. Our eyes in the palace. You heard from her back in episode one. Together, we were out in the trenches with excited onlookers who were hoping to catch a glimpse of their queen. Look at the crowds. If this is the calm before the storm, it's going to be quite a day. I don't know if you can hear, but I'm being accompanied by some wartime tunes behind me <laughs> as the excitement is really building up. For journalists like Daisy and me, these royal events have become well-practiced exercises. In a lot of ways, they're routine. But with the Queen now 96 and her reign coming to an inevitable end, I find myself focusing a bit less on the pomp and circumstance and more on what these four days of pageantry are for. The whole thing is set up for everybody to be able to 
put the spotlight on a small group of people. Yeah. Is every single moment designed to get the public on their side because that's what royals have always had to do. Of course, they are doing everything they can to make sure that it is all as manufactured as possible because they're trying to avoid any slip-ups, any mistakes, you know, any catastrophes. But then, of course, natural things come through because they're human beings at the end of the day. So, for instance, little Louis completely stealing the show um, you know, by blowing raspberries at his mother, that was not manufactured. Of course it wasn't manufactured. In the end, well... I suppose you could say that the palace officials are like show producers and the royals are the talent. Yes. The palace officials make things happen, but then in the end, it's the talent who take it away. There's no better example of royal talent doing what they do best and putting on a show than the Queen's grand wave from the balcony of Buckingham Palace. It's a scene that has been restaged again and again with each iteration of the royal family. It's been a feature of every modern royal display, from coronations to weddings. The Queen even stood on the same balcony the day Germany surrendered in World War II, next to her father, King George VI. She was 19. For the Platinum Jubilee, who wasn't on the stage was just as significant as who was there. We knew Harry wasn't going to make that iconic balcony photo, but to see it is to believe it. Of the more than a dozen royals on the balcony, Harry, he wasn't one of them. We've been told that Harry and Meghan are going to keep something of a low profile. Do you think we'll see a complete royal reunion at some point? Each time the royal family gathers to greet their people, they present a new image of themselves, telling us the pecking order and future direction of the firm. This year, it was clear who we should focus on. The Queen, as always, Charles, and his son, William, and his family, the past and the future. I'm Keir Simmons, and this is Born to Rule. Episode 5, The Heir and the Spare. We are actually going to see the Queen on the balcony, flanked by all of the royals, is that right? All of the working royals, so it won't include Harry and Meghan. You know who we didn't see? It was Prince Harry and Meghan, no longer doing public duties, no longer working members of the royal family. The Duke and Duchess kept a low profile on the first day of celebrations, watching the parade from a window with the Queen's grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The world had been kept guessing about whether Harry and Meghan would join the rest of the royal family in the Jubilee festivities. There was hope that the Jubilee could be the right place and the right time for a reconciliation. We don't know, of course, what happens behind closed doors, and history always shows us that. But... It does look from the outside, though, as though opportunities to build bridges were were not taken. The relationship between Harry and his brother is still frosty. I agree. I mean, we didn't, as you said, we didn't hear anything to confirm that it's frosty. But the fact that I heard nothing on the grapevine to suggest that relations were better. I think if relations were OK, we would have got some nods and winks to say... 
they did have a private cup of tea, you know, but we would have heard that they had caught up in private, that, you know, the relations were good and that uh, there was you know, nothing to see, but we didn't hear that. And uh, that's what, to me, tells me that relations are bad. And what damage does that do for Charles looking ahead? <laughs> well, then... It's a difficult one, isn't it? There is a slight out-of-sight, out-of-mind element to Harry and Meghan now. <laughs> but as in, they're not here to you know, to, to be in awkward photo calls and so not on. Not all so, the time, So yes. not all the time. So when they're not here, Charles can continue with his very slimmed-down you know, vision of the royal family. But it has to be an issue that gets resolved one way or another. That's interesting. Yeah. So you, do th- you think that it has, there has to be some kind of a resolution... For Charles has to address it. There has to be. It can't just be left. I don't think it can be left because he will get asked about it constantly. Whether it's just by people, you know, at events. You now, how are relations with Harry? But you know, we've we've heard very many people do that already. He's got to have something to say. He has two grandchildren. He's. I believe portraying himself as something of a grandfather of the nation. He's got two grandchildren. He never sees. You know, so. Will we yeah, see? Yeah, you can't. Yeah, great. Well done. You've got Louis on your lap. But wait a second. You where, never see the other kids. Where, where are Lily, Beth, and, and Archie? So I think a lot of people would love to see a real olive branch. And based on speculation in the press, Prince Charles may have spent some time with Harry during the celebration. We think we know that uh, Meghan and Harry popped into uh, St. James's and saw. Charles immediately before St Paul's because they were seen going in and and coming out just before and there's not really any other reason for them to be there. But for now, no official confirmation that the meeting took place and a source close to Prince Charles said, like any father, the Prince of Wales loves both his sons very much. To better sort out exactly what's gone sideways between Harry, Meghan, the royal family and the two brothers specifically, I wanted to speak with Kristen Meinzer. Hi, Kristen. How are you? Hi, how are you doing? She's the host of the Royal Report podcast for Newsweek, and she's spent years closely watching how the royals interact with media and how they craft a narrative. And as you heard from her accent, she's also an American royal watcher. So I really wanted to get her take on what the past few years of coverage of the royal family's dynamics have looked like from her perspective across the pond. Supposedly, based on what Harry and William have told the press, what they've said in interviews, uh, based on what the PR team at the firm has put out there, you know, their public presentation, Wills and Harry were very, very close growing up. They had fun together. They joked around together. But in the past few years, Harry's publicly alluded to a shift. In a famous ITV interview in 2019, Harry discussed his relationship with William. You can hear in his voice how much affection he has for a sibling with whom his relationship has changed. We're brothers. We'll always be brothers. Um, We're certainly on different paths at the moment, but I will always be there for him, and as I know, he'll always be there for me. Um, We don't see each other as much as we we used to because we're so busy. Um, But, you know, I, I love him dearly, and, you know, the majority of the stuff is... Probably, well, the majority of stuff is created out of nothing. Um, but, you know, it's just, as I said, as brothers, you know, you have good days, you have bad days. It might seem quite shocking to see this dynamic duo of sorts grow apart. Since Diana's death, they've always been portrayed as the closest of siblings, 
bonded by enormous grief. But if we think about it, there's always been a divide between the two princes. I mean, if we were to take the old adage seriously, the heir and despair, William has always been destined to be front and centre. And in a way, it's always been Harry's destiny to be sidelined. I can't help but think that being the heir is a tremendous amount of responsibility and probably not nearly as much fun as being the spare. And Harry himself has alluded to this. He has said that the best time of his life was being in the military, where he just got to be Harry, where he didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. Uh, I just want to be a regular person. You know, he, he pretty much has said that repeatedly over the years, that he just wants to be a human. Do we remember the names of all the siblings of all the prior kings and queens? Historically, a lot of those names are just, they're, they're lost to the ether, right? And so, in a way, being the spare, it may come with a sense of, what is my purpose in life? How do I navigate this very public role I have with just trying to be a person? And can I ever 100% be a person when I have to also be the pitch hitter? It should be noted here that the spare isn't entirely irrelevant. It's actually a crucial aspect of a hereditary monarchy. The queen herself wouldn't be queen today if her own father, a former spare, hadn't had to step into the role after his brother, the firstborn son, abdicated the throne. But there has often been less of a focus on the spare. And Kristen says that when Harry was younger, he took advantage of that. And you could see the effects of his lighter burden in his public persona. Harry would be a little more human, a little bit less regal, um, a little bit less like I am giving a speech and a little bit more like I'm going to reveal a little bit of my heart to you. I'm going to be vulnerable. And he knows how to do that balancing act, which is very much the current era of what a celebrity is. You know, uh, the celebrity of today does try to act a little bit more human. The celebrity of the past was a little bit more like, here's the soundstage, here's the industry machine, and Harry's more like the celebrity of today. Some say Harry has his mother's charisma and her canny ability to work a crowd and draw people to him. For a time in 2018, the year Harry and Meghan got married, Harry even eclipsed the Queen's popularity rating. But as much as this exciting young couple attracted adoring fans and the glare of the media, Meghan was attracting a less welcome kind of attention. Almost everyone who's ever joined the royal family has come under intense press scrutiny. But in Meghan's case, there was clearly a racist slant to the coverage. Right out of the gate, the British press was not hiding the fact that they were reveling in racist, classist, and misogynistic headlines, rumors, stories, and so on. Harry accusing the British tabloids of bullying his wife with their coverage. Racism from the tabloid press in this country that filtered into the rest of society. Meghan was framed as a problem from the get-go, straight out of Compton. Uh, she has family in the ghetto. She is a gold digger. She is um, a lot of other things where um, they, they did not hide at all what they thought of her. And we all know that the firm, the supposed adage is never complain, never explain. But there's a big difference between complaining about the press saying something unflattering about a new hairstyle and relentless day after day 
publishing thousands of articles that are outright racist and misogynistic against a member of the royal family. And the fact that the firm chooses to stay quiet on that is frankly abhorrent. Uh, you know, Harry tried to respond to that early on when Harry and Meghan were not even engaged yet when they were a couple and they were dating. He put out a public statement decrying the racism and misogyny. On November 8th, 2016, the palace released a statement from Prince Harry's communication secretary that read in part, quote, his girlfriend, Meghan Markle, has been subject to a wave of abuse and harassment. Some of this has been very public. The smear on the front page of a national newspaper, the racial undertones of comment pieces, and the outright sexism and racism of social media trolls and web article comments. This was the palace's first formal confirmation of Harry and Meghan's relationship. The palace is confirming that she and Harry are a couple. I think that's fantastic, and I wish people would leave them alone and just let them be. Yeah, there are people who are um, apparently being very cruel uh, to her on social media, and the palace is slapping back. About a year and a half after Harry's statement to the press and the official confirmation that they were an item, the couple wed on May 19, 2018. Now, Meghan Markle, American actress, mm-hmm. be marrying her English prince. All seemed to be going well in the realm of the royal family. But then, news stories started emerging, indicating that all was not as perfect as it seemed. Harry, Meghan, William and Kate had been dubbed the Fab Four by the media. But in 2019, those stories started to be replaced with ones that seemed to indicate a growing divide between the two brothers and their families. Then, in January of 2020, after a long holiday in Canada, Harry and Meghan returned to the UK and announced their intention to leave. They first moved to Canada and then on to Los Angeles in March 2020. And based on their comments to the press in the years since their move, it's clear they felt they were treated differently than other royals. In March of 2021, Harry and Meghan sat down for a blockbuster interview with Oprah Winfrey on CBS News. And for the first time, we got some insight into how urgent things had become for them. What was the tipping point that made you decide you had to leave? Yeah, I was desperate. I went to all the places which I thought I should go to to ask for help. We both did, Mm -hmm. separately and together. So you left because you were asking for help? and couldn't get it? Yeah, basically. Harry had taken a stand, and he told Oprah his actions had an immediate impact on his relationship with his father. Why did he stop taking your calls? Because I took matters in, by that point, I took matters into my own hands. There were a lot of revelations in the Oprah interview, more than I expected. I actually was anticipating them to, you know, reveal a little of this, a little of that, but, you know, not reveal as much as they did. And some of the most shocking headlines for folks were obviously Megan talking about self-harm and very vivid suicidal ideation. What Megan shared in that interview was hard to hear, conveying a kind of desperation on her part that shocked many when the interview came out. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. I said that I needed to go somewhere to get help. And I was told that I couldn't, that it wouldn't be good for the institution. And she spoke heartbreakingly of feeling trapped, not um, getting the help that she needed. And 
uh, asking for that help and being declined. But they also spoke frankly about the racism, the racism not just from the press, but they also talked how there was at least one member of the royal family who expressed genuine concern about how dark is Archie going to be. And this is not something to be concerned about. The Oprah interview managed to spur something that rarely happens with the British royal family. The palace released a response that read in part, quote, the issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning, and that, quote, while some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. But even more than that statement was a very rare moment from Prince William, who, four days after the interview aired, while visiting a school as part of his normal royal duties, was asked by a member of the media. Sir, have you spoken to your brother since the interview? <laughs> no, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I will do. And, and can you just let me know, is the, the royal family a racist family, sir? No, we're very much not a racist family. We're very much not a racist family might seem like an incredibly mild response, but it was actually a pretty forthright answer from Prince William, who must know that the monarchy's future rests on him and that the royal family's public acceptance isn't guaranteed in the decades ahead. The same week as the Jubilee celebrations, YouGov released a new set of polling data about the family's popularity. Currently, just 62% of Brits think the monarchy should live on. That's down 13% in just a decade. It's a downward trend that must be worrying to the firm. But on Jubilee Day, the Queen, Charles and William took their places on the balcony and we were presented with a new image of the royal family. Centrefold alongside the monarch were William's children, Prince George, Charlotte and Louis. It was a signal telling us that this is a close-knit family, that this is the future. There was nothing lacking from that picture, no gaping hole where Harry would once have stood, and that was by design. They want us to see that the future lies with Charles and also William, his wife Kate and their children. Indeed, while support for the continuation of the monarchy is down, the British public seems to be responding to the younger members of the royal family. This year, Brits voted William and Kate as the second and fourth most popular royals respectively, just behind the Queen and the late Prince Philip. Charles was at number six. The younger royals are definitely making a difference in that one and they're probably bringing um, their popularity back again. Prince Charles does seem like quite old. He doesn't, doesn't seem to be as involved with things as William and Kate are. I don't think Charles should take, take over the mantle. I think it should be um, William. But why? I asked my friend, columnist for the Daily Express, Carol Malone. You met her last episode when we were trying to avoid the London rain near Clarence House. I asked her, are William and Kate an advantage to Charles as he prepares for the throne? They're a super advantage, yeah. I mean, there are many people who would, who would like to see Charles just step aside and have those two. And that's to, not going to happen. That's never going to happen. No, no, no. And, and it, nor should it in the sense that he's waited his whole life at this god. Mm. But seven, Wills and Kate, yeah. But yeah, they are, um, I think they're a massive advantage. And I think, you know, if anyone was to ask me who the jewel in, in the crown of the royal family is right now, apart from the Queen, I would say Kate. She looks incredible. She knows how to behave at functions. She knows what to do. And she's totally trustworthy. You know, the, the Queen relies on 
on her hugely. So I think, I think she's a massive advantage. I think if, if anyone will keep interest in the monarchy alive, it's Kate and Wills, but Kate specifically. It's not hard to believe that Kate has somehow helped to polish the public image of the royals in recent years, an image which has obviously seen some ups and downs. And make no mistake, as I mentioned, the popularity of the royals as a whole is waning. It was a cry heard clearly, even at the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, 10 years ago. There is a chorus of voices calling the royals an unnecessary extravagance, because despite the royal family's sizable wealth and assets, British taxpayers contribute a portion of the cost of the monarchy via an annual payment from the British government called the Sovereign Grant. The way it all works is complex, but last year's grant was almost £86 million. In a poll of over a 1,000 Brits, it was found that only 36% of people thought that the public could continue to afford to foot the royal bill. 38% actually believed that it wasn't a cost worth bearing, with the remaining undecided. Here's Daisy McAndrew again. Think of it as a company, you know, a family-run company. An apt metaphor. Because if the royal family can be seen as more of a company, we can take these numbers and percentages as a sort of performance analysis. We can think of the British public, those being polled and paying the sovereign grant, as stockholders in the company. And at the head of the company? Charles will go and cut ribbons, but William will be CEO and doing you know, and going to the board meeting and sacking people and hiring people and doing strategy meetings. That's, I think, how, how they're, they're thinking about it. He's the chairman and uh, Char- William is the CEO. Exactly. So what's the verdict? Well, domestically, some stockholders aren't pleased. According to YouGov, in 2011, 59% of 18 to 24-year-olds supported the monarchy. And today, that number has dropped to just 33%. The mystique of the crown and nostalgia for the Queen's reign may not be enough as time goes by. The question is, how will Chairman Charles and his, quote, CEO, William, rise to the occasion as the hour approaches for them to take over? I love your description of Charles as the chairman and William as the CEO. It really is a great way to explain the idea of the firm, I know, I know. the royal course, firm to an American th- th- audience. Thinking about it now, of course, I keep thinking about Succession, the TV show, and <laughs> thinking about... The royal that, family yeah. is a real-life succession. <laughs> and actually, you know, they, they had some, some pretty difficult siblings as well in Succession, <laughs> so I think, yes. I, I think we could run and run with that comparison. Yes. It also <laughs> tells you, doesn't it, that, that everything won't be perfect. Inevitably, there'll be more problems and more challenges and yeah. more bumps but, in the road. And in the images from the Jubilee, we saw three generations of future monarchs, with the eldest, Prince Charles, the next in line, looking ready to step into Her Majesty the Queen's gilded, well-worn shoes. Prince Charles on horseback, leading the birthday salute for his mother, bringing the parade to her as she watched from the palace's balcony instead. I think the message was, we're kind of changing uh, the shop window, if you like, and we want to get people used to the idea that 
slowly over time uh, there's going to be a change and you know that's going to be very difficult for people to come to terms with. The people coming here today are considering the very real possibility that this could be the last jubilee for decades to come. of an English queen since Victoria some 116 years before. Almost four months had passed since the death of King George VI as the historic purple and gold royal coach rolled through the streets on its one-mile trip to Westminster Abbey. One million loyal subjects lined the pavements, 25 deep in some spots, to shout greetings to the young woman who was about to receive the crown of an empire. We're back at the beginning. It's 1953, and a 25-year-old Princess Elizabeth is being crowned queen. Over 8,000 attendees have filled Westminster Abbey. Nobles, politicians and dignitaries from over 129 countries and territories. Elizabeth leads a procession of 250 people up the aisle and takes her seat on St Edward's chair. And close by... In the royal pew, the attentive figure of four-year-old Prince Charles watched in wonderment, mixed with just a bit of boyish energy, as his mother received the scepter and orb of the British Empire. The rest is history. And today, that little boy is now standing on the precipice of his own coronation, when Westminster will again come alive with the symbols and leaders of the nation. In some ways, we got a peek into future King Charles at this last jubilee, when the Queen stepped away from some key public appearances. Do you think that Charles had some kingly moments? Yes, I did. And I also think he, I think he was very emotional. And he is an emotional man. And he wears his emotion on his sleeve increasingly so. Once again, Daisy McAndrew. And I don't think that's cynical. I think that's him feeling the weight of what's coming and I think there have been many occasions where the sort of the weight of it and the the emotion of it has slightly overtaken him. In the past Charles has been labelled by the public any number of things pampered, adulterous, eccentric but it feels like we've seen yet another shift in his character away from the reserved prince he once was. And I think he's just he's just determined not to be that stitched up person that I think he was and I think a lot of the reasons why people didn't necessarily take to him were because he was almost trying to be something he really wasn't deep down and I think we'll start to see that. The freshest example of this more open Charles is probably a moment you've seen going viral from the Jubilee coverage. On the final day of celebrations an estimated 10,000 people gathered for the Jubilee pageant. Charles took his seat, representing an absent queen. With him were Camilla, William and William's family. It was a once-in-a-lifetime moment, and the children continued to steal the show through. Suddenly, little Prince Louis jumps off his mother's lap and skips over to his grandfather, taking a seat on his knee. Charles coddles the young prince, playing giddy-up and swaying him back and forth. It was a warm moment that caught almost everyone off guard. He was being grandfatherly. 
I mean, you couldn't get PR like that and you can't orchestrate PR like that. That sort of moment can only be organic. And Charles knows, though, at that moment, does he? Do you think that this, this makes me look good? Or do you think he's just got his grandson on his lap? It's impossible to know, but he certainly, what he didn't do is what I think many people who don't know the royal family very well, haven't observed them very well, is what he didn't do is what people might assume a future king would do and say, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. You know, he didn't push him away. He didn't say, you know, now is not the moment or I don't want you wrinkling my trousers, you know, or putting sticky fingers on it. You know, he just did what a lot of people would expect a grandfather to do. And I think, you know, this was part of the whole series of messages to say things are changing we are relaxing we're more modern um and this is this is who we are and we're also a very tight unit now and it seemed to work its magic captivating and charming the crowds and those who watch the jubilee around the world sending a message the royals are relatable just like us and goodness me, they've come a long way. If you look back to when the Queen had her coronation, a third of British people, when polled, genuinely thought that she had been put on that crown by God. They thought it. They thought that the monarch was God-given. There was a big connection between uh, religion and belief in God and the Christian Church and the royal family. They were mystical. We were. We weren't meant to understand them. We weren't meant to relate to them. We weren't meant to be anything like them. We wanted them to be as alien as possible, so that we could almost deify them. And that has completely changed. And I think the royal family has understood that now. They are not meant to be put on a pedestal by us because if they put themselves on a pedestal, we won't relate to them, and we won't like them, and we won't support them. Again, we come back to that that photo of Louis with Charles. That photo connects the lot just in that in that one image. Louis sitting on Charles's Louis lap. Louis sitting on Charles's lap because it's Charles and Camilla with William and Kate and all three children. It's a direct line. I mean, we thought of the Queen in the last probably 30 years as the sort of grandmother, gr- mother stroke grandmother as she's got older of the nation. And now we're seeing Charles as the grandfather of the nation. So much attention pointed to the future king and the younger generations. But the Jubilee's true purpose was to celebrate Her Majesty the Queen. She sadly wasn't able to be there for all of the proceedings. She missed the Thanksgiving service at St Paul's Cathedral to rest after some discomfort after the first day of festivities. And in those moments she was absent there was that sense that things could soon change. I don't think the royal family would call the Jubilee a a, a final farewell, you know, a, a long goodbye. But I think if you were to ask a lot of people, the public, a lot of people felt it that way. A lot of people got terribly emotional on that final day. People that I know that are not, you know, sort of flag waving monarchists who were just ordinary modern Brits but they you know a lot of them were 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 tearful and sort of bit of a lump in the throat thinking is this how significant is this moment is this uh, a long slow goodbye and that has started a lot of people to think about a world without the Queen which is probably quite helpful because we all know from from deaths in our own family even if you know it's coming it's still a terrible shock And that is what it's going to be like for the country. No matter what you think of the Queen, she is a piece of living history. 
And soon, sooner than maybe we'd like to admit, the day will come when the country is faced with that terrible shock. When that day arrives, the Queen's long-planned funeral arrangements will go into effect. Phones across the highest offices of government will ring out. Flags will be lowered and the Houses of Parliament will be shuttered for 10 days of mourning. London will come to a standstill as the Queen's casket journeys from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, where she'll lie in state for the public to visit and pay respects to. And then, on the final day, silence. The nation will be held still for two whole minutes before her body exits Westminster as she once did on the day of her coronation and is laid to rest. And then it all begins again as Prince Charles fulfills his destiny. While the great assembly silently gazes on the awesome scene, His Grace slowly, very reverently, places the crown upon the king's head. God save the king! Just a note. We reached out to Buckingham Palace, Kensington Palace, and to a representative of Harry and Meghan. We did not hear back. We also reached out to Clarence House. They wouldn't comment. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please give Born to Rule, When Charles is King, a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This episode of Born to Rule was produced by Ursula Summer, together with Abe Selby. Our story editor is Lacey Roberts. Associate producers are Rachel Young and Nina Bisbana. Ernie Indradat is our audio engineer. Original music by John Estes. And additional music by Brian Robertson and MJ Hancock. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Kiko Itasaka and Carol Marquis are our coordinating producers out of London. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Mina Kathoria is our executive producer. Reed Cherlin is managing editor. Soraya Gage, general manager. And Madeline Harringer, our head of editorial. And a special thanks to Helena Skinner, Arnav Jain, Robin Gradison, Amy Wolfe, Celia Muller, Jean Roseman, Nick Offenberg, Ashley Codiani, Casey Wassman, Will Fitzpatrick, Alex Graham, Chapman Bell, Chelsea Danberg, Amanda Sidman, Hayley Walker, Fernando Aruda, Bob Mallory, Lauren Gamsey, Justin Pirelli, Elizabeth Bader, Tom Mazzarelli, Libby Least, and Noah Oppenheim.